Well, I'm Robin. If you're visiting this morning or new, um, I'm an elder here at the church. Uh, Pastor Tim is away. Uh, he and Lisa on some vacation. I think they're driving back today, so they'll be back soon. But you get me instead, at least for today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, 40 years ago, <laughs> uh, I was in my 20s, and I had a Porsche 914. It's a that's the mid-engine model, and, uh, and I loved that car. Uh, it was my pride and joy. Uh, I treated it so well. I washed it every Saturday. I waxed it often. I loved driving it up and down the Coast Highway uh, from where we lived to my office, and it was just great. Well, one day I was getting on the on-ramp near our home, and it had a curve in it. I looked down at the seat for something. I don't remember what. But when I looked up, I was on the guardrail, and I scraped the whole driver's side of that car on the guardrail. Fortunately, it wasn't any more serious than that, but when I got out and looked at the car, I was just, ugh. I kicked the door. I was so mad, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? I can't get mad at anybody else. It's my own stupid fault. Uh, But it didn't turn out so bad. Uh, The insurance money actually made it so I could get the whole car painted when it was fixed, and it turned out looking better than it did before. So I thought, oh, this is good. Well, a little while later, um, Karen drove the car to the store, and it parked next to some bushes. And when she pulled out, it scratched the whole side of the car. So you can imagine, I was just a little bit uh, angry. Uh, But several months before this, I had come to know the Lord. And so it was kind of like this tug of war. It's like, well, is this my car or is this God's car? Should I be mad or, you know, it's like, ugh. So I kind of struggled with that, and I really wasn't ready at that point to let go of a whole lot of things in my life. Uh, but that changed as the years went by, as you'll see. Uh, Brandon's message last Sunday, if you were here, was about when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and he washed their feet. And, um, of course, he charged them with doing the same for each other, not just washing each other's feet, but humbly serving one another, uh, which, of course, Brandon was applying to us as well. This is what we need to do um, as we live together. Well, there's no doubt that this is what Jesus wants us to do. Just look at Philippians um, chapter 2 and you'll see. There's no doubt that what Jesus wants us to do is to to do that, to do what he's done. But do you find it hard? Um, Do you find it hard to consider others better than yourself? Anybody? Because I do. (laughs) And I'm glad that I'm not alone. Um, I think what God has given me to share with you today fits right along with this. You know, there are many hindrances and obstacles that we face in trying to live a life that Paul calls life that is truly life. So we're going to examine that more deeply. And our passage today is 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. So if you didn't happen to get out with your Bible this morning and you'd like one, Charlie will bring you one if you just raise up your hand. There's a, a note page in your bulletin if you like to use that to follow along. And uh, let's read that passage. 
It says, command those, well, first of all, what is this? This is Paul writing to his disciple, Timothy, and he's encouraging him and giving instructions about caring for the church in Ephesus that Paul had planted. So among many other things, Paul tells Timothy what we're going to read here. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. (laughs) So the first thing you might ask is, does this apply to us? Are we rich in this present world? Well, think about it. 84% of the population lives at, or the population of the whole world lives at or below the U.S. poverty line. The 2015 poverty line in the U.S. for a family of four is 24,250. If you live above that line, then you are in the top 16% of the whole world. And I would imagine most of us are even higher than that, more than higher than the 16%, up there around 10 or even more. The median income for 132 countries across the world is 10,000 a year. In the U.S., it's 43,500 and something. In Burundi, in Africa, it's $683. So what's all that about? Well, it's to say that this passage does apply to us. Paul is speaking to us. And he gives us two things that we shouldn't do, and then he gives us four things that we should be doing to experience life that is truly life. But what is this? life that is truly life, and why should we want it? Well, I want to start by looking at what it is not. A life that's not founded on doing good things and with our resources, it's not rich in good works and not generous and willing to share, that's not life that is truly life. Would you agree with me that kind of a life is really a false life? or maybe even a counterfeit life. For a good number of weeks now, Pastor Tim has been teaching us through the book of Galatians, and we have learned that the true gospel is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Anything we put in there would change the true gospel. There's nothing we can do. There's no works we can do. There's nothing we can do to please God. You know, you've been hearing all of that. It's all about our salvation, which is by faith. If anything's added to that, it's a false gospel. Once we are saved, we are to live out our faith. When Jesus is our Savior, he wants us, he wants him to be the Lord of our life. And the truth about this life in Christ can be shown in a similar way where Jesus is Lord of our life plus nothing equals life that is truly life. And the opposite of that would be that when Jesus is Lord, but so am I, I'm doing my own thing, 
is a false life or a counterfeit life. Okay, well, stick with me and you'll see how this works. I think it'll make more sense. <clears throat> what, to understand what counterfeit life is, let's go back in our thinking to Adam and Eve in the garden. The creation story is all about lordship. The first couple was provided for in every way. God created a perfect garden place for them to live. It was perfectly suited for them. And all he asked was simply that they trust him and that they love him. He wanted only their undivided love in return. He created them to be one kingdom people where Jesus is Lord and that's it. But the temptation in Genesis 3 was a subtle yet powerful attack on the lordship of Jesus. The enemy first planted a seed of doubt in Eve's mind regarding the absolute goodness of God. Why would God, who loved you, plant a forbidden tree in the garden? What is he hiding from you? He then presents an, an alternative understanding of creation. Perhaps there are many things that God has kept from you and your eyes have not yet been opened. Don't you know, don't you want to know what God is withholding from you? And then, of course, he goes to the final step and says, you will be like God. Well, there it is. It's the origin of the evil and the sin that was about to invade all of creation from this one selfish desire, humanity's rebellion against God started and it was unleashed on the world as we know it. Since that moment, all of us have been born, all of us who are born of the flesh have been natural second kingdom builders. We acknowledge that God is the creator we believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins and that we have redemption through faith in him. We believe all that. It's not a works issue like it was in Galatians. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but we don't always live like it's true. We love to play the owner. We define things as ours and exercise control over them as much as we possibly can. We build our kingdoms out of the stuff we refuse to surrender to God and we build our second kingdom right next to his kingdom. And it's not just possessions like my Porsche <laughs> that I didn't want to share with anybody and I wanted to take care of it and protect it. All of that stuff. No, it's even more than that. It's the people in our lives. It's all the other things that we think we own and it's our finances, our, our reputation, all those things that we think we think we can control. This is the enemy's dirty little trick. Every time the world tells us what will bring us happiness ends up putting us in bondage. The life that we are pursuing may be a counterfeit life. It's not the life for which we were redeemed in Christ and it will ultimately rob us of our freedom and joy that we were created for. So how do we keep from living a counterfeit life? 
Well, there's many truths in God's word, but one of them that's really important is that God owns everything. You may have heard that when Brandon prayed for the offering. We acknowledge that when we give to him. But what does scripture say in Psalm 24, 1? It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Well, we could stop right there, but there's more. Haggai 2.8 says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. That's God speaking himself. In Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And then even more incredibly critical is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's all of us that know the Lord Jesus. We were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So what we think we own, what we play at being owners of and trying to control, we build our own little kingdom and we play God. Is that sin? (laughs) You bet it is. The first commandment tells us that God does not want us to worship any other gods. That includes setting ourselves up as a God, of course. So after hearing these verses, do you think that you own anything? Hmm. And really, how much control over what we think we own do we really have? Do we know what's going to happen a minute from now or a week from now or a year from now? We don't have a clue. We really don't know, but yet we live sometimes like we do. How much more simple and biblical would it be to leave it in God's hands and let him be in control? How much more simple our lives would be if we were convinced that God owns everything and we're simply his stewards? The definition of a steward is a person who cares for someone else's property. And we are to manage God's possession as stewards. Everything that he's entrusted to us, it's not ours. We don't own it. He's entrusting it to us to manage. It sounds easy, doesn't it? Uh, But it's completely countercultural in the culture we live in. Um, I'm sure you feel it too. Back in 1980, we started a camp for underprivileged children. We sold our house. I sold the Porsche. (laughs) We gave away our boat, and we moved to Idlewild. It was a really rough place to move to. Um, And then we began the next two years to grow this camp to try to take more and more children. Well, there's another couple that was working with us from the beginning, and their role in all of this was to, to pay for the property, and they were purchasing it. But at the end of the second year, they weren't able to keep up their payments, and, and we lost the property. We lost the camp. So it's like, okay, Lord, uh, we sold everything. We've moved here, and now what? <laughs> well, what happened next even surprised us. We started looking around at the property we had bought. We bought some property near where the camp was, and we were living there. And we started looking around. We thought, well, we could just do camp here. 
So that's what we did. We started having campers in our home and around our home uh, for 15 years. Um, that's what we did. And I'll tell you, the issues of what I thought I owned or what was mine got really down to the nitty-gritty. When, when a counselor took a pillow off my bed to use it as a prop in a skit, uh, I was like, okay, Lord, I guess I don't own anything. <clears throat> but it was like, okay, Lord, uh, what more can we do? And what more do you want from us? Um, but it was great to remember that these things weren't ours. One of the most important events that I think has ever happened to Karen and I was a couple of years before this. We were volunteering with Marriage Encounter in Orange County, and we went to a leadership conference in Colorado. And at that conference, the speakers encouraged us to think about this idea of what did we own and what did God own. And so they sent us back to our rooms, and they said, make a list of everything uh, that you think you own, and then give it to God and acknowledge that it's all his. So we did that. We went back to our room. We got out some paper. And we started writing down, you know, first Karen and Robin, and then our children, and then, you know, all the things that we own, my Porsche and the boat and all that stuff. And, and then, we, you know, in tears, we were just praying and telling the Lord, this, this is all his. Lord, whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. Whatever you want to do with us, we're yours. And uh, I really believe today that that was the beginning of Camp Allendale. Because if we had not thought of that, if we had not gone through that process, I don't know what it would have been like for those 15 years at camp. Uh, I, when we lived in Orange County, I considered myself a furniture maker. I mean, I had tools and all this stuff. And when we brought it all up here, the first workday we ever had at camp, my tools went everywhere. And many of them didn't even come back. And it was like, oh, here's another challenge, Lord. And this stuff isn't mine. It's yours. Um, but I struggled with it then, and, and many times I still do. But the first step in, in embracing the freedom that Christ has won for us, the freedom that leads to life that is truly life, is to acknowledge that we are second kingdom builders. Admit it and confess it, that we we think we run and own and control certain things. The second step is to name those things. We must confess that I am living like I own this myself, whatever it is. I've climbed up on my own little throne. I put a crown on my head, and I own this thing. <laughs> So my recommendation to you is when you go home today or before you go to bed tonight, you know, make a list. Get out paper and pencil and with your spouse, make a list of the things that you sometimes feel like you own, whatever those things are. Make a list and then lay it before the Lord and pray and acknowledge that none of that is yours. It's all his. He's given it to you to manage that you are his steward. And then let it go. Let it all go because you're free. There's a huge freedom in not owning anything. Because if something happens to it, oh, God, what happened to your car? <laughs> <laughs> well, the third step then is to think like a steward. 
God is the owner. I'm his manager. I need to change my thinking and my attitudes to adopt a steward's mentality toward whatever God has given us and entrust it all to him. It's not mine. I don't own it. God does. So I hope it makes a little more sense now, this thinking about this equation, that Jesus is Lord plus nothing is life that is truly life. And any time we put something in the middle, Jesus is Lord and so am I, or so is something that I'm still letting control me, it's a counterfeit life. It's not what we want. Jesus wants to be Lord of our life in every way, but we will constantly fight against building our own little kingdom. It is our sin nature. That's why we keep fighting it. We give it away. We take it back. We give it away. We take it back. But we don't have to live that way. For the past two years, uh, Karen and I have been entrusting all of the camp operations to Matt and Tara and Jeremy and Amy. And we are blessed to be able to do that. They are great people to be able to do that with. We've passed the baton. At least we're trying to. (laughs) It's hard. Letting go of something you've been doing for 36 years is hard. Letting go of this property and this house that you used to live in and you owned and all those. I mean, it's all just a struggle. And so we give it away and we take it back. We give it, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I think all in all it's going pretty well, but you can ask any of them. Um, how they think it's going. But a good way to measure how any of us are doing with all of this is the verses that we started with in 1 Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or proud and not to put, on, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain or unreliable. We are not to be arrogant or proud. It would be like saying, I've earned all of this. I've worked hard. This is all my reward for my good work. Sounds bad, doesn't it? But that's sometimes the way we think. That it's not sharing uh, with others. And we are not to put our trust or our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain and unreliable. Our economy can fall apart any time, like it did in 2007 and 8. If this is where we're putting our hope and our trust, then we will be devastated whenever those things happen. But instead, we're to put our hope and our trust in God. And that's the rest of the verse. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to use their money to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the future age, the coming age, so that they may take hold of and experience life that is truly life. So instead of those things, we are to put our hope in God. Why? Because he is reliable and he is certain. Because he provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God owns it all and he loans it to us and and he gives it to us to manage. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what God has entrusted to us. After all, he is our provider. And we are to use our money to do good. 
as we manage the money that God has entrusted to us, it's his, we should set aside a portion for the church that we worship in, the one that we attend. Perhaps we should put away a portion or set aside a portion for a ministry that God has laid on our heart. Perhaps we should put aside money for the poor in our community or somewhere else in the area or even somewhere else in the world. Whatever God is calling us to do, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, each of you should give what you have decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then we are to be rich in good deeds. This is not only the good things we do, but it can be an attitude in our minds and in our hearts. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that I'm missing. Uh Everything that we do that is motivated by the fruit of the Spirit is being rich in good deeds. And number four, we are to be generous and willing to share. After all, none of it belongs to us. We need to ask God to show us how to use the resources he's entrusted to us to honor him. It's being generous with whatever God has given us and not keeping it for ourselves. We all know that it is more blessed to give than receive. Every time we do that, we find that it's true. (laughs) So how are you doing with this idea? How you and I measure up to what this passage tells us not to do and what we are to do is a measure of how much we have made Jesus the Lord of our life and how much we are operating as stewards is a measure of how much we are experiencing life that is truly life not a false or a counterfeit life we want to live in such a way that Jesus is the Lord not out of guilt or expecting that we can earn something that we are going to receive from him, but because we love him. And what better way to show that than to celebrate the Lord's table together? When we come to the cross, we are all equal. We're all the same. We're all sinners saved by grace. We all struggle with having our little kingdoms where we are Lord, or at least we think we are. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup. We know that when we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. During the next song, as we're passing the elements, prepare your heart. We're not telling God anything new. He knows everything about us. We just need to agree with him when he shows us what needs to change in our lives and to repent. So with the the servers for communion come forward, we're going to pass the elements and please hold on to them and we'll take them together. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we are blessed to know 
that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, you have bought us at a great price. And Lord, we want you to be Lord of our life in every way. And we want this time of communion, Lord, as we recognize what you've done for us, as we acknowledge it through sharing communion together, Lord. We all want to lift our hearts up to you in praise and thanksgiving for what you have done for us. You have given us such an example, uh, Lord, that we can't really live up to, but we try. And we're grateful, Lord, that you are never going to give up on us. You are constantly willing to shape and mold us to the image of Christ, and you're going to work on that until the day that we are with you in heaven. And we thank you for that, Lord, and we pray as we share communion together this morning. May it honor you. May it give you praise in Jesus' name.